everyone. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care, an educational podcast for individuals needing long-term care and their families. I'm Jocelyn Bogdan, Program and Policy Specialist at the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care. Today's conversation, when your loved one is labeled a bad fit, how to advocate for the quality care you deserve, will begin with a story from a family member, Kathy, who worked hard to advocate for her mother as she was placed on medication and transferred between facilities. Then we'll bring in Tony Chikatel from California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform to discuss what residents and their families who find themselves in similar situations should know and do and how they can advocate for the care they or their loved ones deserve. But first, here are some clips from our discussion with Kathy, speaking about the experience her mother endured and how it felt for her to navigate the process. Her biggest um, behavior was that she would yell. She would yell out when she was excited, when she was, you know, she was very much like a, very, a yeller and a clapper. And um, I remember the last facility that she went to before she went to a place that was specifically for individuals with um, behaviors, different behaviors. You know, I mean, it, it, it was just really, she just told me my mom wasn't a good fit. And, right. you know, I'd heard that a couple of times. Your mom's just, she's not a good fit. And it's really painful to hear that because my mother wasn't mean or aggressive. She wasn't violent. She yelled a lot. Um, and I don't even know what that means. You're not a good fit, you know, to hear that. And I remember the last place that she went to before she went to another facility closer to my home. Um, it was it was just so mean. And it was like, she, she can't stay here. She needs to leave. And of course they make the calls on a Friday. <laughs> so that was, you know, I, I remember, I think I was actually um, on a work trip a couple hours out of Phoenix. And so to get a call around lunchtime, like your mom's just not a good fit. And I, I just remember saying like, you need to help me find a place that will be a good fit because this is like right. my third time doing this and I need help. And if you're going to evict her, help me find a place that is going to support her and support me and help me. And at the end of the day, she, I think she did find a place that was, you know, geared toward individuals with behaviors. It was considerably closer to my home because the last place my mother was at, she went there after a, a, a stay at a geriatric psych facility. And so literally no one would take my mom. Like they look at her charts and they try and find a, a facility that will take them after 30 days and after being stabilized. And, um, on, on various different drugs. And this was the only one that would take her. And um, it was like, you know, on a good day with no traffic, roughly 20 minutes from my house. So it made daily visits difficult. And I was told that she would probably need to go to a geriatric psych ward to be stabilized. And that's the, the, this word stabilized. I heard that so many times in my, my experience. They need to be stable. They need to be stabilized or no one will take her. And that's, I think, and I, I consented to it, I said, because I, I was just feeling like pushed into this corner of what do I do? What do I do? And so, because um, there was always this looming threat of being evicted. We just did everything wrong. I did everything wrong. <laughs> I, you don't know what you don't know. And so it's, you kind of have this expectation of what people, how, the, how this, um, how these facilities are going to operate. Mm -hmm. And it was a, it was a very steep learning curve. And um, you know, it was, it was difficult and I don't remember the exact medication that she was on, but it was a lot. And I remember she was kind of getting more and more groggy and just less talkative. I mean, I have video of her 
in the beginning and she was considerably more animated and talkative. And then over a period of, I don't remember how long, she just seemed, I don't know if they changed the medication and didn't tell me, but she just seemed to get more out. Like she was told, she got to a point where she seemed really out of it. And I kept asking like, why can't they change it? And that was really hard. Cause like, it's like, I could never get a, a meeting with the, um, the psychiatric nurse who would come in and manage everyone's pain medication. And they were like, oh, she was just here. And I'm like, well, can you have her call me? And she would like, she, I, there was all of this cross wiring. Like we could never connect. And I'm like, can you please have her call me when she's there? Cause I want to talk about this with my, and I could never get in contact with her. So I remember that distinctly. Honestly, I mean, I just thought, you know, I never pushed back too much on earlier in the process because the psychotropic drugs, everyone kept saying like, well, she'll get kicked out. She needs, you know, we've got to stabilize her. If she's not stable, we can't have her. We can't, you know, you can't have somebody who's screaming everywhere. So I didn't really even know how much I could push back on. You know, there was right. so much I just didn't know. I just, I just felt like, honestly, I kept running into a brick wall all the time. I kept like, I was just you know, pushing this, heaving this boulder up this mountain when it came to my mom and it would just come crashing down over me. And that's what it felt like all for several years of just pushing this boulder up and then it would come back down on me to the point where, you know, I remember when she was, I was just reading my blog that I, I used to chronicle this at the time. And I was reading about when she was at a, the geriatric psych, the second geriatric psych ward. And I should say the first geriatric psych ward, um, they wanted to do electric shock therapy. The doctor thought my mother was bipolar in her 70s, which I'm not a doctor, but even I knew that that was absurd. And my dad actually ended up taking her out against medical advice, which I think was the right choice. But I think we're so, in, it's so ingrained in us that, you know, if a doctor says X, you know, we comply. And um, I think in this space, family members should be more empowered to feel comfortable to push back and to ask questions. But I think they need that resource for that language. And that's something that I've seen just in the work that I've done since family members don't feel comfortable pushing back because, you know, you're not, they're not necessarily the experts, but they are experts. They know their loved one. They would have kept her home maybe, or tried to, or at the very least, I would have fought harder and pushed harder. You know, I think that's a big thing because I felt like, oh, you know, I think as somebody who's a rule follower in general in life, mm -hmm. which I feel like I, I just, I listened to people and I believe them and, uh, you know, kind of nodded my head and said, okay, well, they know best and, you know, maybe they're right. And I think that was the wrong thing to do. And I think there's a way to push back, but I think there needs to be language that helps caregivers know what they can say and what their rights are. Like, I didn't even know that I had rights or that my mother had rights. I didn't even realize, like, I could have said, stop it now. Take her off the drugs now. Because when I, you know, I asked about that, it was like, it was not like, that was not a suggestion that was made. Like, you can just say, stop. Right. So, and it, you know, I learned from you that I could have seven years later. So we just listened to Kathy's story, which I know was painful and hard for her to share. We're so grateful that she was willing to share her experiences with us. What she went through was unique to her and her mother and her family, but we know that what her mother experienced in her facilities 
was not unique at all. Her mom was told that she wasn't a good fit for her facility. She was put on antipsychotic medications and her family who were acting on her behalf at this point, weren't clear on what medication she was being given or when. They weren't sure what would happen if they tried to push back. Kathy's mom was sent to a psych ward and her family was concerned about whether or not they'd be able to find a new facility for her. And throughout this, Kathy wasn't sure what her mother's rights were or what she could do or how much she could push back as her mom's representative. This type of experience is awful, but it's one that many long-term care consumers face and one that many families work to navigate. Because of how prevalent some of what Kathy shared with us is, we wanted to bring in Tony Chikatel from California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform to have a conversation with us about Kathy's experience and what families who find themselves in similar situations can and should do. Thanks for joining us, Tony. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Sure. Um, the first thing I wanted to ask you about, and then maybe you can walk us through what you would tell a family that raised these concerns, what, what they should do. One thing that really jumped out um, in Kathy's experience was that the facility repeatedly said that Kathy's mother wasn't a good fit. They heard this over and over. And Kathy did describe her mother as a yeller and a clapper. So maybe there were times when she acted in a way that wasn't convenient for the facility. But you know, as we know, facilities should never just write off a resident as a bad fit or say that they don't belong. And so I'm wondering what someone should do in Kathy's situation if this is what they're told. Let's say they're a resident representative, they're making the decisions for their loved one. But I also want us to talk about what the facility should be doing. Let's say there's a patient who's yelling at night or disturbing other residents. What's their obligation in that situation? Well, let's start with the second part of what you were getting at, which is what should the facility be doing? And I think this is important foundationally for just family advocacy down the road is, is to know what good care is, what good care looks like and what it feels like. And essentially for dementia care, good care is um, creative and patient and exploratory. Um, it is care that's provided with love. And I know that that's might make people a little bit uncomfortable to think about institutional settings, care, care settings as places where the staff should love the residents, but they, they should. Um, and if they don't actually love the residents, they should, they should provide care as if they do, or it's as if they would want someone to care for their family members. So, you know, every resident needs different things, um, but there's a, I mean, of course there's a whole lot of overlap, but every facility should, should start with that premise that our residents have needs and we're here to fulfill them. And if we can't figure out how to fill those needs the first go round, we should continue to try other things. And that's where I mean by being sort of creative and patient and right. um, adaptive and all those kinds of things. Um, so what does good care look like? Good care looks like a place where the residents are happy, where they're comfortable. And I know we, um, Kathy got into a little bit about her mother yelling and clapping. Yelling and clapping are, are natural. I mean, that's that's what human beings do when they reach a certain emotional state. So the job of the caregiver, and, and they should welcome this, they should invite, they should be happy that Kathy's mother was expressing herself in this way so that they could learn what Kathy's needs were better and how to, how to 
fill her needs so that she wouldn't you know reach that emotional state which was probably she was expressing you know some level of discomfort or being upset about something so then the idea is okay she's told us she's upset no what might it be that's upsetting her is it the fact that um, she's hungry or she needs to go to the bathroom or she's in pain i mean those are the obvious things that you think about but then there's other things that are less obvious and this is where the caregiver as someone who loves the care recipients comes in is it something like she just needs to be reassured? She needs some basic human contact. She needs, she may be in a place with dozens of other residents and dozens of staff members day in and day out, but are they actually paying any attention to her and making her feel like she's valued and that she's an important part of other people's lives? That's what people need. And this is just sort of natural. So that's what, to me, what good care looks like, something like that. And then the, the second part is, um, what do you do when a facility seems unable to provide the care that I've described? And this is tricky. I think this is really tricky. And every person, it's, it's going to be very, very fact intense. But and, and on one hand, you, you want to say, okay, they're, they're not, this facility doesn't get it. They don't get, they're calling my mom. Um, they're saying she's not a good fit. And that just to me indicates that this is a place that's full of caregivers who don't really care. It has a bad culture. And maybe they're doing me a favor by telling me, by, you know, warning me that they're not a good place for my mom. And I just move her somewhere else. That's, that's one side of things. But then the other side is um, there's an opportunity here and an opportunity to learn together, to collaborate with the facility, learning on what kind of care best suits my mother's needs. And for me to maybe raise the level of care that's provided throughout the facility for other residents to change the culture, to sort of dig in. And I know this is, it's, it's a delicate balance and I think it's gonna line up for different people in different ways, but I would tend to encourage people to try the stick it out method, at least at the beginning. Um, and that, there's a couple of reasons why. One, you, you avoid the, a transfer to another facility and, and there's certainly, no guarantees that the next facility is going to be any better and there's a decent chance it may be worse there's probably reasons why you selected the first facility in the first place um, second of all the transfer transfers can be very difficult um, even if it is to a place that's equally good or or even better there's just a learning curve that can sometimes be traumatic for the resident but the most important thing for me in terms of sticking it out is is that I think you're going to learn a little bit more about the, the resident, the, the family's going to learn more about the resident, the family, the staff are going to learn more about the resident, and then there's this opportunity to improve care for lots of people in this facility going forward, and I think that's a chance to, to do some real good um, for lots of people that um, doesn't come around all that often. Yeah, thanks. I mean, you know, when you when you were talking sort of about the facility's obligations and the, you know, the right to good quality care, um, you know, it just struck me one thing we've talked a lot about in this pandemic that I think has been forgotten during COVID is that this is the resident's home. This is where they live. They deserve to be comfortable. They deserve to be, you know, taken care of in the way that you're describing because this is this is their home. Um, so I appreciate you you referencing that. Um, Can I build off that just for a yeah, second? Yeah, sure. This is a really important point that I want everybody to know. And um, this was definitely part of Kathy's story and it's part of a lot of stories that I hear, which is residents and family members feeling under-equipped to be demanding. Um, right. 
in on one in because for one reason it's they feel inexpert that they don't have the experience to know what what the rules are and what good quality care looks like and then second of all they're just concerned that if they if they are at all confrontational with the staff and the administration that there may be some sort of retaliation or things like that um, well, we can get into that but what i want people to know first and foremost is that they they should push back. They almost have an obligation to push back when they're responsible at some level for the care that a family member is receiving where they've taken some ownership of that care. They, I think they have to push. And I think most people, deep down, they know what seems fair and what seems righteous. And if things just aren't adding up, um, the long story short is to, feel, is to feel comfortable pushing back. You don't have to be a jerk about it. You can be very polite, and I always tell people when you're when you're writing your letters or you're making your calls, start off with saying thank you, thank you for agreeing to take care of of my loved one. I know it's it can be tough, um, but we really appreciate it, and we want to be partners with you in creating a care plan that works. And but on the other side, we're going to we're going to hold you to your end of the bargain, which is to provide good quality of care, uh, and we're going to make sure that you do that. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, you know, one thing that Kathy said that really struck with me that I wanted to come back to or want to come back to a little bit later is that, you know, families don't feel like they're experts when they're dealing with doctors and nurses and people within these facilities who, you know, you look to and think they have a lot more experience. But the reality is, as she pointed out, you're an expert on your loved one. You know, you know more about them. And so when you do go into those care planning meetings, when you are, you can raise things. You might know that, you know, your mother gets cold at night. You know, some of these fixes, if she's yelling out at night, might be as simple as giving her an extra blanket. But that's something that the facility might not know that you're aware of. So I thought, you know, it was, that was that was a really key point that, that she made. Um, but to, to sort of flip a little bit, um, something else that she referenced um, was that, you know, at one point, or at least one point, she wasn't sure what medication her mom was on, if it had been changed, if the dosage had been changed, and she was just unable to get an answer about her mother's medication from the facility. When she asked, she was told the person who prescribed and changed the dosages was had just left or wasn't in, and she never got callbacks. She never got a straight answer. And, you know, as you mentioned, in terms of pushing back, she said that she herself didn't push back earlier on the medication when she wasn't certain about it because she was afraid if she did, her mom would be kicked out of her facility. And, you know, we know that residents have rights surrounding all of this. You know, first, as you mentioned earlier, they have the right to good care. They have the right to quality care. They also have the right to consent or not consent to medications. And they have the right to, and you described this a little bit already, like non-pharmacological interventions before medication. And they also need to have full documentation of the medications that they're given. Um, so can you just speak a little bit to what a family should do if they're facing something like that, if the facility is just shutting them down when they're asking about medicine, um, you know, and again, I think this is really important right now with COVID because it's harder for family members to physically be in the facility and to physically be present, um, but, but it's a very big issue. Yeah, the residents have the right to review their medical records, including the medication lists and the medication administration record. And that right to review records usually um, applies to surrogate decision makers like agents and a power of attorney mm -hmm. or family members who are signed the admission agreement, things like that. Um, so it's a, 
that's a very you know well-established legal right to do that. And if a facility is denying that right or being avoiding the exercise of that right, um, what I recommend is, and this is what I recommend in lots of situations, is to reduce the demand to writing and, and make it clear that it is a demand. So you could say things like, you know, again, you know, thank you for being a, a care partner and I'm glad to work with you. Uh, I have some concerns about medication, I, beginning with the fact that I don't know what the medications are and it's important for me to know this. So I would like to see the medical records. I brought this up a few times in the past, but you haven't um, provided any records or, or, or worked with me in getting them. So I'm putting my demand in writing and I wanna see the medical records within the next you know, seven or 10 days or something like that. If I don't hear from you within the seven or 10 days or you reject my request to see the records, I'm gonna file a complaint with the state regulatory agency or something like that. And those are, I think those are pretty easy complaints to get resolved because it's just, like I said, it's a clear right. And if you, now you've reduced your demand to writing, they, they're, they're cornered. And if any, any refusal at that point is, is um, gonna be bad news for them. On the other hand, this, this brings up another issue of the facility is resistant to the most basic requests to see medical right. records. They, they should, ideally they would say, oh yes, you know, let us get you the records um, and then let's talk about them after you've had a chance to review them so that we can discuss any concerns that you might have. Or prior to your reviewing the records, tell us what your concerns are so we can start to address them right away. That's the reaction you want. Anything less than that is a concern. If they're avoiding providing the records at all, that is a major red flag that they're, they either don't have their act together to comply with a simple request or they're being evasive because they don't want the family member looking into the med medications and making any adjustments. That's not, that's probably not a great care partner and it's either an opportunity to work with them to get them up to speed on good, good provision of care or maybe you're starting to look for a new place to go. Right. Um, another, that's, that's a really good point. And so, you know, earlier you were talking about how, you know, often it's better to, to try um, to stay within a facility um, just because, and, and I completely agree with that. My own grandmother was in, transferred to multiple facilities and you can see it again, going back to the fact that, you know, this is someone's home. Every time someone moves facilities, it can be a little bit you know, it can be more confusing for them and they have less of an idea of their own bearings. But, you know, in light of that, I just wanted to bring up transfer discharge concerns and the rights that residents have. You know, we know a resident can't be discharged, you know, very easily to start with. They can't be discharged for not consenting to antipsychotic medications. However, a lot of families, and I think, you know, Kathy's family was one of them that was very afraid if they said no to the medication that, you know, her mom or, you know, their loved ones will be thrown out of facilities. Um, you know, we know that, you know, facilities can try to get around some transfer discharge protections by claiming that they can't meet the resident's needs, that the resident might be a danger to someone, you know, if they've swatted at a staff member or something like that. So can you just talk a little bit about how families who are acting on behalf of their loved ones can handle situations where they're threatened with discharge um, or they're, they're afraid that that's what's coming? Yeah, to start with, I know this is easy for me to say. I've been doing this a long time and I and I, I'm, you know, I feel comfortable with my level of expertise and things like that. It's really something important to impress on 
consumers and their family members is that a discharge notice is doesn't mean that the sky has fallen. Um, it it means a lot of things, and it's it's definitely something serious. But um, in a lot of cases, I tell people we we're inviting the discharge notice because now we've got them trying in their best way to reduce their concerns about providing care in the future into writing. And there's a whole, it, normally there's a whole host of rights that go along with the discharge notice so that the resident just doesn't have to pack up their stuff and go that day. There's usually a lot of advanced time and there's appeal rights and the facilities oftentimes get the discharge notices wrong. So if you file a complaint, they're found defective and they have to start over the, again. And a lot of times they don't, they're not willing to start over again. To me, um, the threat of discharge is often used um, and it's sometimes I don't even think it's stated out loud, but it's used to get residents and family members to toe a line. Right. Um, yes. And I, and that's a problem. And I think a lot of times the discharge threat is completely idle that the facility could even, they could go for, they could do a discharge notice, but they're just not going to have the legitimacy to actually legally carry through with the discharge. So don't panic if you get a discharge notice and don't let the threat of a discharge notice steer you away from what is doing the right thing for your family members or for your um, care advocacy. Once you get a discharge notice, you can deal with it. There's ombudsman programs, there's resources online, there's uh, citizen advocacy groups, consumer voice. All of us can help people deal with the legal side of the discharge notice. Um, but to me, a discharge notice is a admission of failure on the part of the care provider. More often than not, it's an admission of failure. And that's important to know. I, I, I think that um, it's an, again, it's an opportunity to try to build up a new style of care. Um, and it's also sort of a way for the, for the consumer to, to tell the facility that you failed um, you said that you were going to provide care and now you're trying to get out of it. And that's, that might be a breach of contract situation that actually might give the resident and the family members some legal leverage to pursue avenues that they might not have been able to before. I think that's a really good way of looking at it because I know, you know, when, when I think of someone, you know, as Kathy's explaining her story, I don't think that's the way most people, you know, immediately think of, of, of discharge notices. I think they, you know, you, you internalize it, you know, someone's telling you that your relative isn't a good fit, that they, that they don't fit in where they are, that, you know, they, and, and you're right, it's not even always the actual threat, it's just sort of the, the underlying idea that, you know, this might be what happens. A lot of people feel like that's their failure or their relative's failure. They don't look at it from the perspective of the fact that this facility has certain obligations and they failed to meet them. Um, so I think that's, that's an empowering way for families to, to look at the situation. Um, yeah, there, there's two things I want people to know more than anything. One is this is an industry where dissatisfaction, consumer dissatisfaction is common. <laughs> All right. So there's just, there is a, a lot of poor care that's out there um, or, you know, less than satisfying care. So don't feel like you've done anything wrong if they're if you're in a facility or your loved ones in a facility where the care is not that great the second thing I want people to feel is empowered I want them to know that you have more power legally with a whole host of statutory and regulatory rights 
but also um, as a consumer and with market power and with the kind of love that maybe the facility staff are lacking to bring into the mix, you've got a lot of power. Yeah, I think that is important for families to to recognize because I think you feel as as I think you can probably tell listening to Kathy, they felt the opposite of that. They felt powerless. They felt like they didn't know if they had the right to push back, what they could do, what they should do. And I think, again, if you're told, you know, if there's a family listening to this now and you've been told that your relative is, you know, a lot of facilities will use the word difficult. Um, you feel like that's just you, you know, like this is happening just to you, to your family member. But what Kathy's, ex what her experience was, what her family's experience was, is it is common. And as you said, there are a lot of people who are not happy with the treatment and how people are, you know, being received by the staff. So I think that's that's really important. Um, yeah. Labeling a resident difficult or not a good fit is sad and frustrating to me. Um, and it should be sad and frustrating to care providers to hear that. From my perspective, as a caregiver, you want to probably do the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And if someone is, quote, difficult, to me, that's an opportunity to, to make their lives better. There's probably some simple solutions that just haven't been applied yet. So as a caregiver, I want the challenging resident because I feel like I can provide the greatest good to that particular person, that particular family. And if you're in a facility where the culture is not that, where the culture is difficult people need to be excluded and taken out, then I think you either got to make a stand and try to improve things in that facility or get the hell out. Yeah. So something else that Kathy talked about that I think is is important, maybe more important right now, um, is, you know, she talked about her mom being sent to a psych ward, as she said, to be stabilized. Um, and she noted that the doctor suggested her mom might be bipolar, a diagnosis that she, Kathy, you know, acknowledged is, is not something that happens to you in your 70s. But we've recently heard more of this, um, residents being diagnosed for the first time in their 80s with schizophrenia after they've gotten to facilities. Um, we know those numbers have gone up even more during the pandemic. Um, so you know, we also know that those those are not accurate diagnoses, like people are not becoming schizophrenic in their 80s. But what can a family do? What, what can Kathy, someone like Kathy do if a doctor says to her, you know, we think your mom is bipolar or we think your mom has schizophrenia. If a family gets that type of diagnosis, what questions should they ask and who should they talk to? Well, I think they should certainly be skeptical of, of something like that. I think that families should be skeptical of medicalizing anything uh, related to dementia um, because that's, sort of a fallback for nurses and doctors to do. And, um, and it's just really an access point for them to get into medicines. Um, when Kathy's mother was taken to a psych ward for stabilization, what it probably meant was for her to be chemically restrained and right. subdued, not, not stabilized, but subdued um, with the use of chemical restraints. And in psych psychiatric hospitals are probably more comfortable and have less regulatory um, challenges to chemically restraining patients. So then you know, send them to the hospital, get them on a bunch of meds so that they're uh, lying down, sleeping 20 hours a day and drooling on themselves and then bring them back and keep them on those same meds. Uh, again, if a physician or a nurse brings up a potential diagnosis, by all means, hear them out. Um, they may have some valid points and some things that they're uh, some 
light to shed on the situation. I think the family members and residents should be very skeptical. What I find in these situations with the medicalization of diagnoses and symptoms that are really just somebody expressing discomfort or pain is the, the healthcare providers are really making their lives easier. Their, their goal is to make their own lives easier rather than making the resident's life better. Um, so you have to be very, very careful. And a lot of people ascribe, you know, high value to physicians and they're sort of the experts and they're always concerned about patient care, but physicians are fallible like anybody else. And a lot of times the way that they're fallible is that they want to please the people who seek their help. And a lot of times the people who seek their help are not the patients, it's the care providers around the patients. So the physicians want to improve the lives of the people that reach out to them. And in some, a lot of those situations, it's the care staff. And the way to make the care staff's lives easier is to make the resident uh, much more pliable and mute. And oftentimes that's medication. So um, gotta be very careful with this stuff. Very, very careful. Um, again, hear them out, but do your homework and don't agree to anything unless you, um, you know, you've done a lot of homework and you feel like it's the right thing to do. Right, and I, you know, I think something you you mentioned just kind of briefly is, you know, these residents often they're in pain, you know, and I think this is something that is that is often overlooked, and especially in a patient with dementia who doesn't necessarily have the words or the ability to express themselves in the way that you or I could, you know, it, a lot of times some of the screaming or shouting or, you know, as I believe it was termed in Kathy's facility, these behaviors um, are, are coming from a place of pain, whether it's a UTI or it is a bed sore or it's something else that, you know, we might not be aware of. You know, I, I don't know that people always look at the residents, like as you described some of the doctors who might have conflicting, you know, interests in terms of who they're, who they're working with and for, you know, some of these residents are in a lot of pain, you know, before, and, and that's why they're behaving in the way that they are, and that explains a lot of their actions. So it's just, it's important to remember that there might be other underlying causes. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a relatively um, famous study where they looked at the pain medications given to people after hip surgery, and the folks that um, had dementia received half as much pain medication as the people without dementia wow. following hip surgery. And is it because people with dementia don't feel pain? Absolutely not. They feel pain just the same way as anybody without dementia feels pain. The difference was they weren't able to say this hurts with, right. with those particular words, the magic words of I'm in pain and my, by my pain levels eight out of 10. Instead, they would quote act out, you know, they would, they would right. yell or, or um, be resistant to, you know, getting their clothes changed because it, because it hurt. And they were doing their best to tell people that, but they weren't being heard. So um, yeah, uh, underdiagnosis of pain is a big problem with folks with dementia. Um, but I also wanna mention one other thing, and this sort of, I think really shifts the paradigm in thinking in, in terms of dementia care and, and this whole medicalization thing, which is the way we provide care for babies. Everybody knows, just sort of naturally, intuitively, that when a baby cries or seems upset, it's, it's not because they have a, a disease that needs medication. It's because they have an unmet need. And everybody knows this. It's, and we go through checklists in our heads. Are they hungry? Have, does, do they need a diaper change? Are they cold? Um, maybe they have, you know, they're teething and, and their gums hurt. 
could be so many things. And so many times for babies, it's just, they need attention. They need to be picked up right. and reassured and loved. And um, while pain, physical pain is a big problem in dementia care, psychic pain and um, lack of connection, lack of human connection is also a significant problem. And that could be the, that could be the cause for a lot of this, um, these quote behavioral challenges. And it's just as simple as creating some human connection to take care of a lot of that. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really, really good point. Um, you know, it's the same lack of ability to communicate in both instances. Right. So something that, you know, we talked about a little bit earlier, but, you know, Kathy says towards the end um, with her in her conversation is that she wishes she'd had the language to push back. You know, she said, you know, as we discussed before that she, she does, you know, she acknowledged that, you know, you're an expert on your own loved one, but, you know, I think it's important for families to have, to, to know if there are words, you know, what they can actually say, what they can do so that they can try to do what you described earlier is work with the facility as a partnership, because that can be very difficult, you know, as, as you have, you know, noted yourself, sometimes facilities aren't that amenable, but, you know, in general, I think having language, knowing sort of what they can say and what they should be saying, um, is, is important for families, even, you know, families who might be listening right now, um, because there is this assumption, I think, that, that some people do have going in, you know, as we discussed before, that the facility is right, you know, you, you hear a facility say this to you, you know, that, that your loved one needs this medication, that this is happening, that this is happening, that they can't control this person, that they might not be able to fit into this facility, and I think for a lot of families, if they don't have the words to use or know what arguments to make, you know, their initial assumption is going to be that, you know, that's right. I don't, I don't have the space to push back. And I, and I think in Kathy's situation, that's a little bit of what, what was happening. And so I know, you know, we have resources for families, but I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts or specific suggestions for families. Yeah, th this is a great place to, a great thing to talk about. And um, now that I think about it, so many times when I'm talking to callers who are upset about some aspect of long-term care, and I encourage them to write a letter, and right. I'll say, you know, your letter can say A, B, and C, and and I can I can tell they're furiously writing down every word that I'm saying, and they say, oh, you know, you're saying it. Can you repeat that? I, you know, the words are so are so good. For, for my problem and I, I wouldn't be able to put it in quite this way. So language is, I think it is super important. Um, and I mean, the, the long story short on language is to, to just go on the internet and find resources that are in your area. I know Consumer Voice has a lot of resources. My organization, California Advocates for Nursing Reform has about 75 fact sheets on different aspects of long-term care to give people um, right. power and to give them the language to use. But I'll, two things on the, on the language bit. One, on the dementia care stuff, I encourage people, strongly encourage people to read Dementia Beyond, Beyond Drugs. Uh, dementia Beyond Drugging, I think is what it's called by Dr. Al Power. Um, it's a great book. It's not that long. It's like $9.95 on Amazon and, and gives people a lot of perspective on what good dementia care ought to be like and, and tons of good language. And I also think an actual phrase that every consumer and family member should know is care plan. Um, 
Yes. And on the nursing home side, federal law requires an extensive iterative care plan that's constantly being evaluated and implemented and that is partially authored by, hopefully, by the resident and their family. And then in um, assisted living, oftentimes care plans are also foundational, even if they're not quite so legally required in some states. Um, but family members should definitely be pushing the care plan. And the language of the care plan is really the language of the resident's needs and how they're gonna be provided for. And on that, I think family members, as, as you mentioned before, especially with Kathy, on that family members are experts and they know the language of what their loved one needs and what their loved one prefers and doesn't prefer. So um, definitely wanna talk up the care plan process. Yeah, I think that's important. And I think, you know, what you said at the very beginning, you know, having the right to good care, that residents have the right to this quality person-centered care, every resident in every facility, you know, and and I think having that in mind going in is maybe helpful because I think that gets lost very quickly when you start, you know, hearing this kind of pushback from facilities about your loved one. Um, yeah, it, get, it gets back to don't be afraid to be demanding. Right. And, and, and another thing is um, there's no problem at all with telling asking the staff of the facility to say, can you explain this to me? It, I'm either I'm not sure about it or it feels wrong to me. So can you explain uh, why you're doing things this way? And let me tell you my reservations and hopefully we can come to a meeting of the minds. Don't be afraid to say, I don't know. And I would like for you to explain it to me. They should be able to explain it to you. I bet sometimes they're not gonna be able to. And then, uh, not, then you've identified a real problem. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So do you have any final thoughts or words to share before we Yeah, one, one last thing I wanted to mention that I, I wanted to talk about before. Um, you know, I think for the most part, the caregivers are always trying to do the very best that they can. But the concern is that sometimes they don't know the best way to provide care. And that's where the family members and the consumers can really come in and help push the, the staff into what's the best for this particular resident. And what we like to say is when people know better, they tend to do better. So part of our job, and it's it seems a little odd that we would have to educate the professionals, but um, again, this industry does leave a lot of dissatisfaction with folks. So this is an opportunity to, to educate them, um, to provide better care for everybody, but in particular, you're the expert on, on what you or your loved one needs, so educate them on that. And so um, I don't wanna impugn caregivers. I know that they're not trying to actively hurt people. It's just a lot of times they don't know how to do things better. And it's our role to try to work with them to get there. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. All right, you're welcome. And I encourage anybody uh, you know, with significant concerns or problems, uh, reach out, reach out to Consumer Voice reach out to Canner. We are here for you. We, the reason we exist is to take calls and, and emails and concerns about long-term care and to try to help people through it. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care is a program of the Avoiding Drugs as Chemical Restraints Consumer Education Campaign, a partnership of the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care and AARP Foundation. 
make sure to visit our website, theconsumervoice.org slash pursuingquality, where you can share your story with us, subscribe to the podcast, and find more information about the campaign. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next episode. Thank you.